is not only for people to believe, but that people, by believing, would experience life and life abundant. So if you're there, uh, I'm going to read the words out loud and then we'll pray. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things and these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say these things to you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven and the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These are God's words. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for your word, for this portion of scripture. Would you speak to us mightily? Would you open up the deaf ears to hear? Would the spirit be able to break through and convict and challenge and then also comfort? We love you. We praise you in your name. Amen. So this sermon is entitled Life's Greatest Teacher. And the reason why I entitled that is each week I've been talking about this concept of life. Um, last week we talked about the joy given, or uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about the joy given life, when Jesus turns a whole bunch of water into a whole bunch of wine to save a party from ruin and to be the life of the party. And we've been talking about this concept that John titles his miracles not miracles. He doesn't call them miraculous works. Every time we think of miracles, we hear like a Disney soundtrack in the background, like, oh, Jesus is about to do a miracle, and it's like a, like a Tinkerbell sound that's like coming, and a hallelujah chorus, and we're like, why did people believe in Jesus? He was doing these amazing miracles. But we have to understand, there was no soundtrack, right? He was with, only the servants saw him, he turns the water into wine, and then nothing. People were just wondering, where did they get all this wine? And then we also see, uh, we also see Jesus uh, 
not only at the wedding of Cana, but when he goes to cleanse the temple. And he goes into the outer courts of the temple where the, the non-Jews were, and that the Jews were actually making it harder for non-Jews to worship God. And he runs in there and he says, you have turned my father's house to where you guys aren't worshiping God, right? Because you're selling the Gentile stuff, and the Gentiles aren't worshiping God because you're making it really hard for them to worship God. You've turned it into a house of trade, a den of thieves, instead of a place to where people pray. The Lord has become your product you shall not want. And so we see Jesus tearing down these institutions. So each miracle, John calls these miracles signs. He says, these are just signposts pointing to how I have come to fulfill things. So the water turned into wine. Yes, was it a miracle? Yes, was it fantastic? But it was explaining that Jesus was going to marry heaven and earth together and that his heaven and earth brings about celebration and joy. When he went to the, when he went to the temple, the whole concept of him going to the temple was he was saying, instead of you going to a certain place to worship God, heaven and earth meets inside of me. God was a or Jesus represented 100% God and 100% man, and you could worship God through Jesus. So he goes through each institution, marriage, the temple, and now we see a third institution that he transforms. It's the one of the teacher, the rabbi. It is the one that all of the Jews would say, this is where we learn how to live our lives. Because yes, do we receive the law of God? Absolutely. Was the law of God come from Moses? Absolutely. But there were 70 men that Moses used, right, to delegate how to actually interpret the law of God. And would you know it, Nicodemus, Nick at night, comes to Jesus, this teacher, right, of the law. And he's not just a teacher of the law. He is a part of the greatest sect of the law. He was the master teacher. And he goes to a greater teacher. One at night because he was too afraid that he would get heat put on him. And I know people have said, you know, no, it was a cool day and, you know, that's when people met up and, you know, they talked and stuff. No, that's not true. What we see within the context is we realize that he was a great teacher and if you were going to actually talk within the temple or talk within the synagogues, it was a great thing to actually converse and have commentaries about the scripture. He was meeting out late at night trying to figure out who Jesus was and didn't want to get flack from other people. One of the things that I love about this portion of scripture, and we, we look at it, is it talks about teachers or teaching or this institution of teaching. And I've been thinking more and more as Lola just is about to turn to November 14th, it's this amazing thing that she has started learning questions. Basically, the only question she has right now is, what's that? What's that? What's that? And I love it because I love hearing her voice and I love explaining to her things and she just could care less. She just wants to say, what's that? What's that? And she points to things and she does all of these, all of these things and they ask tons of questions. Well, I always wonder, why do kids, one, ask so many questions, and two, why do they end up stopping? A while back, um, there was a discussion about questioning with a guy named Richard Saul Worman. And if, if you don't know who Richard Saul Worman is, he is one of the guys that started TED Talks. I don't know if you know about TED Talks. You see them on Facebook. They're basically 
atheists and agnostic sermons, right? Like, they're <laughs> sermons for the smart people, the people that don't go to church, and it, they're fascinating. They're 15 minutes. They stay on that 15 minutes, unlike a pastor or a preacher that just takes all the time in the world. But we see these TED Talks, and Richard Saul Warman, the original creator of the TED Talk conferences, uh, he's a man who is pretty much obsessed with questions. He immediately focused on the educational system. In school, we're rewarded for having the answer. It's all about having the answer. What is the answer? You get rewarded for having the answer and not for asking good questions, Worman pointed out, which may explain why kids who start off asking endless why or what if or what that questions gradually ask fewer and fewer of them as they progress through grade school. This also came up in a Newsweek um, story. It was called uh, The Creativity Crisis, about signs of declining creativity among our school children. Interesting facts cited in the article, preschool kids ask their parents an average of 100 questions a day. Aren't you glad that your kids, some of them have grown up out of preschool? 100 questions a day. By middle school, they basically stopped asking questions. Around this time, the article points out student, uh, student motivation and engagement plummets, which raises an interesting question. Have the kids stopped asking questions because they've lost interest, or have they lost interest because the world revolves around answer-driven school systems and doesn't allow them to ask enough Questions. I think that was one of the biggest things for me. Anytime I think of a great Bible teacher or I think of a great professor I've had or someone that was older than me that I, that I looked up to, anytime I've ever, ever been, been really moved, it was never a person telling me the answer. They were asking really good questions that probed into me that would help me discover the answer. Right? I think that's a really hard thing, too. I, I, I had one professor said, hey, I am not going to mark up your, your, your papers and make it bleed with red ink. You know, I'm going to help you get an A. That was like, her whole concept was like, I'm not going to like go crazy on you and make sure that you have the right answer. I'm going to help you get to that right answer. I'm going to lead you with good questions and help you probe and actually have you dive deep. I think some of the most amazing people are those who would be called teachers. However, because we live in such a society that everyone should have all the answers, and if you don't, go on Google and find it out real quick before anybody figures it out. I did this last night when my aunt, uh, not my aunt, excuse me, my mother-in-law was asking me a Bible verse for someone. She's like, what's this Bible verse? And being a pastor, you know, my Rolodex of Bible verses, I should just know exactly the reference, right? Well, get this, all of the original biblical texts, they didn't have verses and chapters, okay, guys? So I know roughly where these references is, but I had to consult the almighty Google and ask where this certain verse was and then send it to her, and I did it really fast, and it made it seem like I knew where it was. But we have a place that we keep on asking. We, we keep on wanting to know the answers instead of asking very, very good questions. And the lack of inquisitiveness, the lack of something... Um, of kind of figuring out the problem, I think is is troubling. And we, as the church, I think we do a really horrible job of this. And, and I, I want to challenge us today. Um, I say this a lot. Um, if you've been around me a while, you've heard me say this. I'm going to say it to us again. 
The church needs, needs to stop. We need to stop answering questions that nobody's asking. The church needs to stop answering questions that nobody's asking. For some reason, we have got the Bible on lockdown where the verses, where, where you know, we have it all memorized. We have a portion of scripture or what would Jesus do or how Jesus would answer things that we have become ineffective of asking good questions that the world is truly wanting to know. And then we have these pat answers and we say, oh, I wonder what James Dobson would say or Robbie Zacharias would say or N.T. Wright would say or any theologian just put it. And we say, I wonder what they would say. And I would control copy it and then I would paste that answer to people thinking that that is sufficient. I think it's a, I think it's a challenging one. We have to ask better questions so that we can tailor better answers. This is what I love about this text. This is what I love about it because I think that Jesus gets to the very heart of Nicodemus's questions. I mean, think about this. If the creator of the universe, a person that turned a whole bunch of water into wine, a person that cleanses the temple and then he, nothing bad happens to him and he calls his house the house of prayer and Nicodemus comes and he's like, I know you're from God. I know that you're a teacher from God. He is a master teacher, but he knows that this 30-year-old something rabbi that has a bunch of fishermen following him has answers that are outside of his death from a different world, from a different place. So what do you ask a guy like that? If you could ask Jesus one thing, what would you ask? I guarantee you, that if you thought really, really hard about the question that you would ask Jesus, it would have nothing to do really with how he did everything. Because John even says, if I told you all the works and all the things that Jesus said, there wouldn't be enough books in all the libraries. And guess what? I bet you there is a book by your bedside that is gathering dust, and you're just kind of like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it, I'll read it. And you would say, you know, at, at first glance, you would say, if I could ask Jesus a question, I'd ask him how he, how he did everything. And it's like, you can't even read a book of all the things that we already know of what he's doing. What makes you think if he sat down with you and he said, oh, I'm going to answer this question for you, that you would even have the time or the attention span. But I think, I think, I, at least I, I, was, I, was, I was wrestling with this thought. What if I could ask Jesus a question? And I don't think I would ask him a super, super technical one. I think it would be intimate. I think it would be personable. I think it would be maybe gathered around suffering and pain. Why does a good God allow all this senseless evil and suffering to happen? You know, you know why do my parents go through a divorce? You know, what 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 are what are the things that you know? Why did you make me this way? When when I've asked you time and time again. To take this thing from me, you said, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? When we get real with, with asking true questions, it, it's actually not high and lofty. I mean, at first, second, you know, we want to be like, well, how did you make a caterpillar or something, right? But I think it would be really intimate. It would be really personal. And Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus doesn't even know that he has. Nicodemus wants to truly know God. 
And Jesus starts answering it. And I love that. So what does God say in this text? Well, one, he says this. He says, you need new eyes to see. So look, let's look at verse 3. And, and before, the reason why I read uh, verse 23 where Jesus leaves the festival booths and he says, he knew what was in man. I think that kind of, you know, it, it flows right into the next text that, you know, man constantly is trying to shield themselves and prove them to themselves that they are better or, or, or good or worthy. It says, Jesus knew what was in man. And right after that, Nicodemus comes at night and says, hey, I have a question for you. <laughs> right? It's kind of funny, right? It's kind of interesting that he goes into that portion. Well, let's look at this. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Okay, you have to think of this. So there was the Herodias line of people, which is King Herod, and they weren't really the ruler of the Jews. They, they were, but they were kind of put there by Rome. Rome said to these people, and, and you have to know this about um, the Herodians, right, or the people that came from the line of Herod. They came from the line of Judah Maccabee, which that whole big, dark um, uh, 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a guy named Judah Maccabee that led the Israelites um, uh, uh, out of, of captivity, and there was all of these amazing things. He was called Judah Maccabee the Hammer, good nickname. And anyways, through his line, he ended up kind of the Herods came out and came about. And so what we see with that is the Romans had um, the, the Herodians to be kind of above all of the kind of governmental line. But the people that were really in charge of the Jewish people were the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the rulers. It, it, it was based back on the time of Moses when he had 70 rulers to kind of do it. And they were allowed to give punishments. They were allowed to give commentary of what the law of Moses would say. In the Jewish mind, they were everything. To be a ruler of the Jews like Nicodemus is, he must have had a great pedigree, just like the Apostle Paul. You remember when Apostle Paul said that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews? What that means is usually, back in those days, you were Jewish based upon your mother's heritage of being a Jew. It was not based upon the father's. The reason why is because you never know, right, if, if the wife didn't have other relations with another man or whatever and so what they would do and what they would say is it has to be through the mom and so what a hebrew of hebrews would be it would be be the father was jewish and they they knew it through the line and the mother was jewish, uh, uh, was jewish and that's how they would say a hebrew of hebrews and that is usually what um, the rulers would be nicodemus so this man came to jesus by night and said to him this rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god this is the crazy thing. The teachers of the day knew. He does not say, I know. He was saying, we know. He was saying there's a group of these 70 men that ruled the Jews that we know that you are a teacher that have come from God. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom not see the kingdom. Nicodemus concedes that Jesus is a teacher from heaven, that he acknowledges outside of the law and human invention that he is the son of God. Nicodemus, the teacher, would like to become a student of this great teacher. 
Nicodemus is curious about how to learn this knowledge and to see this knowledge. That's an interesting thing. We always think that we discover truth, right? We, we, we think that, you know, if we've thought of something that's new or a new argument or, or, or new information, we think that we discover it, that, that it's never been, it's never come out before or nobody, nobody else has ever thought of it. I, I always think of it every time I'm doing a sermon, I'm like, I've never seen that exegesis before. And I'm like doing, doing my work and I'm doing all of the, 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 the hard work at the front. And then I read a commentary and they're like, yeah, this was a guy from 1200 that had this kind of exegesis. And I'm like, yeah, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Truth is never found. It's always revealed. Truth is never found. It's always revealed. If there is a truth, it is a truth from God. Okay? If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Every time I hear, oh, I, I was at Barnes & Noble the other day to get a book for somebody's birthday. And I, I, uh, I, was, I was looking at all of these new books out there. And I, I'm realizing that they put these covers that are really sparkly and flashy, especially in the Christian life, because they know it catches the eye. And all the guys that I like to read, they have like the most boring looking books ever. I'm like, these guys are never going to get read, ever. I'm like putting them in front of Joel Osteen's face and stuff. I'm like trying to get them, like, I'm like, maybe I should just be here. Maybe this is my ministry for life. Be in a Barnes and Noble and put other people's books in front of other people's faces. And I, I just, I just think, I just think of how, how much, you know, how much of these books proclaim to be new, never before seen, never before, and I'm like, you know this is in the Bible, right? You know that Calvin has been talking about this for years, or Luther. I think every time when they have this new brand, or this new view, or this new vision, I just say, come on. Come on. If it's new, it's not true, but if it's true, it's not new. Truth is always discovered, it's never our truth is always found, it's never discovered. And I hope I did, you know, I hope for many of you who, are, you know, think that they have discovered the truth, that this isn't too big of a topic that, you know, you didn't find it, somebody else did. You know, it's always funny when people say, oh, Columbus, you know, found America. It's like, yeah, but it's always been there, you know? Like, you know, it's always been there. God always been there. So Jesus responds that if you are not born again, you cannot see the life God is bringing into the world. I love this. Because this means that it is not based upon information that you can actually learn from Jesus. It's not based upon data transfer that God has all these amazing things here. And if you study enough books and read enough books, then you will actually be able to learn from Jesus. He says you need new eyes. You need new glasses. You need something new. C.S. Lewis, he says this. I love this, and I'll, I'll show you how this ties in. So C.S. Lewis writes this. Niceness, niceness, I didn't even know that was a word. Niceness. Wholesome, integrated personality is an excellent thing. We try to be, uh, we try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. 
A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. It might even be a more difficult world to save. See, for mere improvement is not redemption. For mere understanding uh, theology or reading books, that is not redemption. Through redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end. Improve them to agree a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has gotten its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow, when it cannot do so. And at the stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them, they are going to grow into wings, and may even give an awkward appearance. Okay, what did he mean by that? You're like, Josh, why are we talking about pegasuses and winged horses? What are we going with? Okay, I want you to understand this. We come into a world of the 21st century where people, okay, for the most part, I know it's, it's getting pretty you know, volatile, whether it's politics or anything that we get into, you know, there's one side or the other. However, I think within the 21st century, people are very nice. People are very nice. And, and, and it's hard when you meet a person that doesn't believe in Jesus and they're so nice, you're like, does he need Jesus? Because he's so nice. And what Lewis is saying here is a world that is nice, though it is a great world, and that's what we want, isn't redemption. It's not safe. It's not something that is what people need. People don't need to become better and better. And so what I mean by this with, uh, uh, with, with Nicodemus is Jesus wasn't giving him more information so that he would understand God's world. He says, Nicodemus, you need new eyes. And he says, I could tell people all day long, it's like a horse, right? Though sometimes we think of Christianity as like it's like a horse, that, that we have like a little staple, or I don't even know what they call it, staple chase? I don't know, the, the, the thing, that the bar that horses jump over, right? We, we got this image in our mind. And sometimes we think that Christianity is all about jumping higher, doing better, being nicer, reading more, learning more, doing things more, and jumping higher and to, to where we can jump you know, a little higher and a little higher, and we can show all our other Christian friends that we're jumping higher and higher. And Jesus is saying, and Lewis is saying this, it's not you doing more and jumping higher that makes you better or redeemed. It's you becoming a winged horse. A winged horse can fly. It can beat the old horse at its own game by not even trying. Right? Isn't that crazy? Think about that. Think about that. If, if you are born again with new eyes, you don't have to study all of the crazy commentaries and all of the theology because God has given you new eyes to see that you couldn't see before. You were once blind and now you can see. And so the point that C.S. Lewis is making is he's saying redemption isn't becoming better and better. It's becoming new. So that neighbor that you had that is so very nice, they're not new. They're blind. Even in their niceness. That should, it should, one, give you compassion to people that aren't nice, but also say, I need to challenge, I need to love and say, you're not new. 
You're missing out on a whole vibrant side of colors of what God wants you to see. Though, I, though you go through pain, I want you to have new eyes to see that pain is worth something more. So we see this. We need new eyes to even see the kingdom. I think the problem many times is that we are talking about the things of God and we don't know that we need new eyes. Do you have the new eyes to see what God wants you to see? To see people in a different light. Have you been reborn? Nicodemus, he has these questions. And he says, the reason why you search the scriptures all day long, because within them you think that you have life, but they speak of me. You're reading these books. It's describing who I am, that the Messiah would come, and you're missing me. I'm right here in front of you. You're calling me the greatest teacher ever. I'm only 30, he says. I'm young. I'm not a ruler of the Jews. You're coming to me at night asking me questions. You're missing the point. Many times we think more theology, more studying, more books. And Jesus is saying, just open your eyes. Open your eyes. Josh, I don't like doing devotions in the morning. It's boring. When I read it, it's just what maybe you need new eyes. To where when you read the scripture and you look, it says, Behold what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, for that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Maybe I look at that with new eyes and say, No matter what goes on, whether I'm in a fight with my wife, or my family doesn't like me right now, or my job is just gone, I can look and I say, I'm loved by Jesus. With new eyes we see. Secondly, you need to be... Oops. Sorry. One second. It's coming. Uh, yeah. There we go. Oh. And for my next trick... need to be reborn to enter. So verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man born when he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone that is born of the spirit. So theologian Nicodemus should have understood what Jesus was getting at. Because Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, their prophet, something that he would have been very familiar with, especially as they are all constantly looking for a Messiah, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Okay, this is why this is so cool. Okay, please hear this. This is amazing. So as I was talking about before, he's trying to jump higher and higher to be better and better for, you know, God. He says this, if you truly want to be redeemed 
And if you truly want to get better and better, it is not you doing things in your own strength. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. And that spirit does it through you. C.S. Lewis says, right now we might have lumps on our shoulders being like, okay, I know that wings are growing here and God's doing a redeeming work, but I, it still feels kind of weird. I still don't know if I can actually fly. I don't know if I can jump this jump. And see, in that culture, especially with rabbis, it was such a, a, a learned culture to where you would have to understand and you would have to keep laws and you would have to keep rules. And guess what? It is hard. Think about it. To follow after God, I could break every sin in this book tomorrow in 10 seconds. I could break it, all of these things. And I get frustrated, right? Because I'm like, how can anybody do it in my own strength? If the point of Christianity was for me to keep all those rules and jump higher and higher, that's what I would spend all my life on. And that's what the Jews did. That's what Nicodemus did. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you can't do it in your own strength. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to give you a spirit to help you obey the statues, help you to do these things. That's the amazing thing about love. What Jesus did when he poured out his life for us is he says, I did it so you can do it as well. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now love your neighbor as yourself. See, a lot of people think that the greatest, you know, uh, we, the greatest commandment is love God, love others. But the problem is, is that's me doing the work. I'm loving God. I am loving others. Jesus says, I give a new commandment to you, right? The new commandment I give you, love one another, okay? Okay, I have to love one another. Okay, that's, that's hard. But how do I love one another? From behind me. As I have loved you, you might love one another. It's not through my own strength. I can't love other people. I can't love God. That's what religion is. Trying to love God and trying to love others and being incredibly nice. The redemption changes you and says, I have loved you. You see this? He's loving me. And because he loved me, I can love others through his strength, through his spirit, through his love. You say, Josh, I don't know if I can do this whole Christian thing. I'm going to save you time. You can't. You can't. But he did. He said, Nicodemus, you've been studying and trying to be better and better. You need new eyes. You need to be born again. Now, this is kind of hard, being born again. Because get this. If I was born again and I wasn't born a Hebrew or a Jew, I wouldn't be the promised people of God. For Nicodemus, it was all about his heritage. He did not want to be born again. They all believed that they were incredibly blessed. The chosen people of God, the favorites of God. And Jesus says, you need to be born again into a different family. He's like, no! What do you mean? I'm the chosen people. This is the way that I'm doing it. This is the way that I have proven my life. I've gone to the top of the top. And he says, you know what? It's better for you to be born again. We hear that and we're like, what do you mean? Getting back into my mother's room. And he's like, no, no, you need to be not born of flesh. That doesn't keep you. You are not a, a son of Abraham because you share his DNA. You are a son of Abraham because you share his faith in the Son of God. Being born in the Spirit is better than real estate you might inherit. Right? If you inherit anything from your family, and you might in inherit earthly real estate, Nicodemus probably did. He probably inherited his father's house. Jesus says if you're born again, you're going to inherit a heavenly house. 
For in my Father's house there are many mansions. And being born in the Spirit is not being controlled by human will. See, this is the thing. Lola did nothing to be born. She did nothing. She just came out, started crying, and she was in our family. She didn't do anything to be born. This makes Jewish people back in the first century mad because they felt like they had accomplished being the favorites of God. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again, and you have nothing to do with it. Many people here today try to do something about things that they can't do anything about. Wrap your head around that one. My job, relationships. We try to do things, and God's saying it is all like the wind. It is all like being born again. You cannot choose. It is by me. Essentially, therefore, the new birth is from God. It is supernatural, beyond human control, or exhaustive human knowledge. Like the wind, however, and despite its mysteriousness, it affects, can be experienced at first hand. You know what? I do not know how these lights work, but I take advantage of them all the time. I do not know how the air conditioning works, but I take advantage of it all the time. I do not know how the new birth works, but I take advantage of Jesus bringing me away and saying, come away, my beloved. Rest. Thomas Brooks says this, and th th this is for the single people out there. <clears throat> if you're a man of holiness, you must look more for a portion of grace and a wife than a, for a portion of gold with a wife. You must look more after righteousness than riches, more after piety than money, more after the inheritance she has in heaven than what possession she has on earth, more at what interest she has in Christ and what interest she has in creatures, more at her being newborn than her being highborn, more at her being good than all her worldly goods. I think for us, many times we think about what people have on this earth, and the thing is, is Jesus moves the marks and measures and says, hey, do you want to really be a part of something amazing? Don't look at worldly riches. Look at the riches that are in heaven. Don't look at other things on earth. Don't look at being highborn. Think of the newborn. And then lastly, you must, you must believe for eternal life. So Nicodemus then goes in and says to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. So he's just saying this. I'm speaking of something that I have had firsthand experience with. And I bear witness to what I have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. You reject it. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, here's an interesting thing. This portion of eternal life, this is the first time in John's gospel that he talks about this concept of eternal life. Okay, we have neutered, okay, we have neutered the concept of what eternal life is in the 21st century. We have turned it into baby fat cherubs playing harps all day on clouds, and that's where we're going for eternity. If that is that, I am not going. I refuse to be dressed up as a baby cherub. Okay? I'm not going to do it. I do not look good in a diaper. Don't picture it. Heaven is not a place to where we experience 
the mundane forever. It talks about the streets being paved with gold, and we think of that one like, so what? I got what chip off you know the gold sidewalk and pay for something? It's heaven. I can just ask for it, right? No, what he was talking about was this: that what human beings find great value in, wealth, gold. He's like, that's like dirt up there. The most amazing thing that controls what you can have or your provisions, we don't think about that up there. We don't think about that in heaven. That 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 the greatest thing on earth is something you don't even think about in heaven. Imagine that. Apply that to anything. So imagine the most amazing human experience that you can ever experience. It's like dirt up there. It's like the ground, and you don't even actually think about it. It is so much further and greater and more wonderful than we could ever know. Eternal life isn't just how long it is, but it's the quality of that life. Think of the quality of life. Think of your relationships. Think of your financial capital. Think of your emotional health. Think of your relational health. Think of all the things that you would like to be at full bars. Eternal life is that forever, but of a quality that is so much more. So he says, if you don't have eyes, Nicodemus, you won't be able to see. Which asks the question, who around you might be incredibly nice and good, but they don't have new eyes to see? And who are coming to you that are really good people, and they say, why do horrible things happen to good people? And you get us to tell them, you are an incredibly nice and good person, but let me tell you that the sin of humanity has made an indelible mark and curse on this world to where you can be incredibly good, but if you aren't new, you won't be able to see through all the horrible pain and senseless evil and suffering. I mean, think of that. There are so many people around you that are just getting bum deals. And God has given you an opportunity because you have eyes to see and say, don't put all of your eggs in the basket on earth. Put all of your eggs, all of your riches, all of your life in that which is a thing that does not perish, but one that is of eternal life. Secondly, if you are not born of the Spirit, you cannot enter. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And if you don't look at God glorified and lifted up, you will not have eternal life. See, Jesus then resorts to further the vivid Old Testament image to present Nicodemus with the invitation to experience this new life of the kingdom. Numbers 21, 4-9 records the Israelites escaping physical death from a plague of serpents when they looked trustingly to a giant bronze serpent which Moses raised on a pole in the center of their encampment. So says Jesus, the Son of Man himself will be lifted up and all who look trustingly to him will experience eternal life of the kingdom. The verb lifted up is ambiguous, covering both exaltation and actually the physical crucifixion of him being lifted up. John makes much of the ambiguity later in the gospel. Humankind as a whole have been smitten with the disease of sin, a deadly disease. One that came from a serpent, and that serpent brought about a deadly kill that unless we become born again, we will die in a great death. 
The only cure is to look at the Son of Man dying on the cross and find life through believing in Him. So here's the ending. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion is this. The master teacher answers the questions of Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You're not going to understand any of this by any theology or by me telling you or teaching you all the things that you have to do. It only comes through belief. It only comes through belief. He says, all of the 70 rulers did not know what to do when the children of Israel were getting bitten by snakes and they were dying. It was only through faith that God presented a bronze serpent to lift it up and by that belief, by suspending your rationale by suspending and saying, you know what, it doesn't really understand and add up, but he says, if I look at this lifted thing, I will be saved. Nicodemus, it's not about more information for you to learn. It's for you to look to the Savior. First Corinthians says this, First Corinthians 18, for the word of the cross, the cross, God saving the world by the cross, is foolishness and folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I 